Hi everyone, it's Guillaume from Startup Basecamp. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. During the show, you will have the opportunity to meet the best climate tech founders, investors, and experts from both Silicon Valley and around the globe. They will share with you their stories and personal journeys into this growing and exciting industry, giving you some insight into the ecosystems that help you to take part in the fight against climate change and benefit from the opportunities it can represent podcast is divided in two small interviews. So in the first part, you will get to know our speakers, their perspectives on the climate crisis and how climate tech is changing the game. Second part of the discussion will be for members of our community who will learn the speaker's secret sauce on how to and share with you their unique expertise on topics such as fundraising, management, strategy and so on to help you to become a better leader in your field. So before we start, I would like to quickly share what we are doing at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech founders in accessing resources and gaining visibility with investors they seek. Our initiatives include a membership-based community platform offering access to a dedicated Slack group with a growing number of founders, experts and investors from around the world and a series of exclusive content such as interviews, weekly job listings, events, and our quarterly online pitch of night opportunity. But more than a place where you can learn, exchange, and grow, we are building a matchmaking service to facilitate connections between our members and top investors and experts in the field. And soon, alongside with other top investors, we will be launching a small fund to co-invest in the growth and acceleration of our members. Finally, all of this is possible because of your support and donations. We are a small self-funded team and we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. So please share one episode with a friend and subscribe to the channels. As an added bonus, we will plant a tree for each of our subscribers each time we reach 1,000 new fans or donors. Do not hesitate to connect with me via social media or email guillaume at Startup Basecamp. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope to get in touch with you soon. And now, let's go for the show. Hi, everyone. In today's episode, we are speaking with Rokas Peculiatis, founder and managing partner at Contrarian Venture. Contrarian Ventures is a VC firm that invests across Europe and Israel and provides a hands-on approach to climate generation that puts founders first by mobilizing the resources and building the tools they need to accelerate their product market fit. It was a joy to talk and speak with Rokas, who at the age of 26 convinced the largest utility company in the Baltic to back him in investing in a single GP. And from there, Contrarian Venture was born. The firm remains true to its name and makes bold audacious bets at early stage across the energy, mobility, building industry, and carbon removal sectors. Rokas, maverick approach to investments in the climate tech sector truly offered some fascinating insights into the carbon removal space, the role of regulation in carbon markets, and the way forward for climate tech. In the second part of the show, Rokas offers more than just your average Google search word of advice on how he likes to get people's attention when he is making them an offer. He also provides some interesting reads 
that can give you a new perspective on human society. Rokas, welcome to the show. Hi Rokas, welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us today and already congrats on making the news with your uh, last fund, 100 million. That's uh, a lot of money and uh, very exciting uh, news for the ecosystem. So I'm looking forward to this uh, great opportunity to hear your story and get up to speed on what you guys are looking at with uh, Contraire Venture. So welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for hosting. Thanks for inviting me and uh, very excited to have a chat today. So before we start, as a tradition, can you please uh, give us a 30-second intro about Contraire Venture? So yeah, Contraire Ventures is, I sometimes say we're also a startup ourselves too when we speak to founders. Um, we're trying to build a VC firm that is for climate generation. And we're doing a bit of from a product approach. So we're trying to mobilize resources needed for these climate entrepreneurs with our hands-on approach, uh, with our collaborative founder approach and always putting founders first. So we build a few tools that from one way or the other help founders to accelerate their product market fit because we usually invest in seed stage across Europe and Israel. So let's start from the top. Can you tell us a bit more about your uh, personal story and background? Uh, as I said, we like to put, you know, the uh, invitee as a human uh, in, in the center of the interview. So what do we do besides uh, working on supporting and investing uh, into founders? I mean, what makes you feel, you know, inspired or your best self? As I always ask, like, who's Rokas? Yeah, so I think, uh, I think I will try to go back to the story, which will probably bring back to I think 2012, so I think I graduated from university, studied abroad, I'm originally Lithuanian, uh, born and raised uh, in Konos, which is second city in Lithuania, and then I went to study abroad in the University of Glasgow, and I was always passionate about financial markets, that's where I started my career, I started my career as a trader, trading exotics and inflation, specifically in race context, so I guess more relevant today than it was back then when I did, given where inflation is today, but I was always fascinated about markets and um, and really only later in my career when I started Merrill is I got, again, intro in introduced through uh, my mentor into, I think, the tech ecosystem. And it was just a nascent one, especially in the Baltics back then in 2012. And I had a this one touching point, which really triggered a lot of things in my head. And down my career, uh, I, I that bug grew only. <laughs> And I think back in 2016, I made a conscious decision to leave banking and, and do something that I felt was more interesting rather than speaking a squawk with, squawk with uh, seven brokers around the world trading a very niche financial product. And uh, luckily, and I guess there's a lot of fast forward here, but uh, started the firm in 2017 with Fund One. Again, contrarian, a lot of these things will probably come back for this podcast with you, but it was contrarian probably to me, myself, and the thesis that we did at the time. So climate tech was not really a word back then. It was probably more clean tech or clean tech 1.0. That was a lot of people's head when you would speak about a strategy to invest in places such as energy, mobility, uh, build an industry. And, and later, only those were added to our thesis. So initially in fund one was more focused on energy and mobility were two big sectors that I think a lot of the past 10 years investments came into that sector, especially from a venture capital standpoint. So it started back in 2017, I was only 26 years old. Little did I know about venture capital nor about investing in companies. And, and that's why when I said in pitch, it was a lot like startup story. I think back then it was pre-seed, raised the five first funds to initially with six and a half million fund later, got increased to 12 and a half million. That was fund one and fast forward five years. 
you know, we really bit by bit built a firm and, and, and trying to build a category leader in the space, uh, specifically for founders that are raising first time institutional money across Europe and Israel. And we believe Europe has a lot to offer, uh, a, little, a lot to offer, especially in this context where we are now from geopolitics and energy crisis that we're currently undergoing, but also broader about generally how we're positioned as a, as a continent. And, and again, great founders that come from industry was built in the 70s, especially in the German context uh, or even UK. And, and, and I think it's a very exciting time that found ourselves to do a very early bet initially in this sector and be a niche specialized fund. And again, the headwinds of 2020 and to fast forward to 2022 when the dialogue around climate tech become more prevalent, uh, again, greatly benefit us as a manager. Um, and obviously our portfolio that we've backed since 2017 when we did our first investment. So actually 2018 was the first investment um but but that's that's the short fast paced story but um the the kind of main uh, i guess triggers there were just you know financial markets were very developed i think i entered the financial markets when there was a lot of regulations post 2008 and that's why that market was not necessarily as exciting because a lot of those regulations put in place a lot of limitations to what you can do in an investment bank in Merrill Lynch at the time that i was there and this was a new world and I was eager to learn. And I think five years, we, we somewhat learned something now and everything. I mean, I love this job for one reason. I think you never stop learning every day from people that are way smarter than you. And I, I just love connecting people and ideas. And I think a lot, especially when you're in early stage venture capital, this is what, what drives to be successful in this business. And um, I think that that's the reasons why we didn't approach this as a traditional venture capital firm, I always had this thought that you would never stand a chance to win in a generalist game. I think you always knew that you have to be really specialized to A, both create value and understand what you're underwriting and find those risk reward opportunities that can make, you know, outlier returns. Uh, and, and, and that has been the journey that we, I say, half a decade, sometimes people refer to us as one of the oldest funds in the seed stage in Europe, but feels like just yesterday. And I think we're looking in our lives, both me and my partner Thomas is, this is our sort of probably, you know, first job in VC and last one. And, and we look at through what we joke as net zero goals by 2030, we're almost also both my partner are similar age. Um, so we joke that by 2030, we're gonna be 40 and by 2050, the next net zero goal, we're gonna be 60. And that's really the trajectory we're trying to build a firm around and trajectory that we build our lives around. So. It's just the beginning of that journey. Uh, if you could say to 2030, it's still one seventh of it. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's really an exciting one. And um, we think that there's a great opportunity um, to build a great firm around that, that would serve founders and, and also LPs that invest and trust their money with us. So before we go into the into details of the of Contrarian Venture, we like to, I mean, and you mentioned, like you said, the firm when you were 26, uh, you had this uh, experience in finance with uh, Marin Lynch. What gave you, uh, as you know, 26 years old, uh, you know, it's uh, it's quite early for uh, for a fund. Usually people have more gray hair um, or, uh, you know, have been like uh, entrepreneurs with uh, with IPO before whatsoever. Uh, but what during this, like, I would say those first 26 years of, uh, of your life, 
has been like this one piece of uh, experiences in a way or gold nuggets that in a way gave you an edge to start a to start a firm if you can maybe recall that or share that with us yeah i think i think it's evolving thing now i kind of obviously every every time you don't try to think about the the past you focus more on the present and i'm one of those people i think uh, but fast forward you always stop for a second and think through what went right or where you got lucky or what happened in your life that you didn't expect to happen so i think generally i'm a very intellectual curious person so i really try to learn new things and that not necessarily comes through a single focus thing that i want to polish and be good at and i think that helped to be to be open-minded and I think in, in venture capital, you have to be really open-minded because every day you're going to be challenged to your thinking and, and you change and adopt that opinion. And I think that was part of the trading job, right? You don't just have a position, you always reassess it according to the market. So that's one thing that I took from that experience. And I, I kind of often, since I was 16, in my, my sort of ideal dream job was being a trader. I read about books and, and tried to really meet people that were doing that job. And that really changed when I went to the job because I realized how, how how beautiful from the outside it looks like and how actually boring it was from the inside. But but on the other side, I was I'm, as you can see, I'm pretty extroverted, uh, so I, I'm good with people. And I think for that job also was a bit of a, I would say I wasn't under, I was trying to I was coming to a conclusion that maybe this is not really for me probably even be better at sales as a matter of fact in that construct of a job which is sales and trading right so there's a sales part to it and there's a trading part to it but at the same time i was lucky enough to meet people that were in tech and they were most successful entrepreneurs at the time and then still up to this date which run now public listed companies and back then there were still startups raising serious cd funding and some of them became our mentors then through them, I actually saw the other part of the world, which I've not necessarily seen before. I read a few books when I was, I think I did an exchange program in California for a year, and I got to meet some people that were building companies. For example, Kevin O'Connor, who built DoubleClick, which later became the engine behind Google. And I got to see these entrepreneurs. I was fascinated and actually changed completely my mind. I said, wow, that's an interesting space, but I know nothing about it. So that comes when I was a student by reading a bunch of books like, you know, Michael Lewis, The New New Thing and stuff like that. That's a prevalent history of Silicon Valley, basically. And and through that, I think, experience, I tried to meet these people. So being very open to new experiences, really going out of your comfort zone and try to meet people and learn about their experiences. I, by the way, like one is a hobby. I really love to read bi biographies. And that started initially even from university, where I would read Wikipedia and try to find out how other people went through life. And I think everyone has a different pathway to life, how they go approach it. And sometimes they get lucky. Sometimes they get smart about something and they get and they work. Most instances, they just work their ass off. <laughs> but uh, but I got to learn about a lot of different pathways, how one can shape it, and just not being afraid to ask, not being afraid to ask the question, not being afraid to approach that person that you think is your idol protege and, and ask him to be a mentor even. And, and I think through these experiences, you know, when I launched the fund, I didn't launch it myself. Just, I had a number of venture partners that were experienced venture capitalists who backed me in that journey. And it was a timing and opportunity that I seized, which in fund one, we have a single LP, which is the largest utility company in the Baltics called Ignatius Group, which is uh, publicly listed, uh, partially owned by state. And they trusted that 26 year old, I guess, crazy guy who had no experience, but had a vision and, and vision in that particular market where not a lot of people saw an opportunity there. And what's most important is managed to convince people that they were way more senior than me to go on that journey and, and, and try to build a firm around it. And so that did happen. Um, and, and, and again, seizing an opportunity was an important one and i think a lot of people don't try to go out of their comfort zone because 
leaving cushy job what I always joke about banking it was a golden cage yeah it was golden but it was a cage <laughs> so so I think for me it was just intellectually very uncertain I mean I'm talking to it as it was like a <laughs> it was a run with a nice Nike sneakers at full speed <laughs> as, a, as a sprint but no it was a marathon it's been already a marathon of five years and a lot of mistakes a lot of humbleness to learn from those mistakes, not repeat them, which is the most important one. I think that I learned as well from trading career. If you make a mistake once, it's a mistake. If you make it twice, it's it's a problem. <laughs> uh, and 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 yeah, a lot of things being aligned. And I truly, more and more often, is what progressed my career. I guess start to believe in a bit of uh, randomness and and ability to open big loops and through long periods of time to close those loops and through those loops being open-minded and meeting a lot of people that eventually lead to something magical to happen. If yeah. you're very open to it, vulnerable and not necessarily trying to profit from it in, from day one. If you're trying to be really helpful and uh, I do believe in that karma that comes back later down the road. So, um, so I wouldn't attribute to this to a lot of success or, or something like that. I would attribute a lot about a openness to new experiences and and really giving it a chance and i think a lot of entrepreneurs would say a lot of same things they some of them tried to do five businesses before they found that one and i think for me venture was always this fascinating career where you can not necessarily be entrepreneur yourself not willing to take that full risk but at the same time you have an head of investor where i would say i would I don't, I don't have an adhd but i still have a relatively short attention to spam and and that helps to sort of be always in to find new things and learn about new things, which is really that part of the job that really, really excites me and wakes me up every day, eyes open and, and, and with a smile to, to go and do what I do. And, and I think what later I learned for this career is that I think I'm, while being good with people helps to make these connections for other people, which again, while for some people, this is a waste of time for me, I think there's value added if those are done correctly and with not by a factor of just doing them, but actually with intentional value creation for both individuals. So I think there's a lot in that in VC. I think it's still, we're trying to productize more so than doing it as a email thing. And that's where we're sort of trying to move the firm towards being more streamlined workflow, uh, automated workflow to help these entrepreneurs. And then it's their choice to use it or not use it that for their own benefit. Um, so. I guess there's a lot of things that happen for a reason. There are also yeah. a lot that happen randomly, but I think eventually every journey and pathway of someone's life is very, very different. And one shapes it from, you know, day one to the next, every, every day you can make different decisions to adjust it one way or the other. So I think a lot of randomness, I'd say, be attributed to that. So last thing that uh, I'd like to, you know, catch from your own journey and this uh, incredible journey that you had so far. Prior, we, uh, we jump into the more the, the macro ecosystem of, uh, you know, uh, direct capture and, uh, and the carbon market per se. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more, maybe, um, what was your, uh, you know, working in finance and then, uh, you know, being venture capitalist? But not just VC, uh, you're VC uh, in, as you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, uh, considered more like clean tech at that time no it's climate tech because uh, people knows what we're talking about uh yeah. but what was this like haha moment if you had any of them that really 
that you could define or recall as such that was defining this move that you said, okay, I just don't want to be just a, an, an investor and venture capital list in itself. I want to really support uh, companies, uh, inv- founders that are like really spending time and effort to build solutions uh, for this like long journey as you qualified as well uh, until uh, 20, 2060, uh, when, you, when you will retire. 2050, 2050, hopefully. 2050. Okay. <laughs> we never um, really retire, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I think, um, I think there's three things maybe it's, it, in point of time, and they're very different. So one, actually realizing the size of, like, just generally understand the macro view of how economy as such works. Um, I could say there are three big transitions that we went through the last 30 years. Um, the big one is probably telecommunications, like as an industry transition, evolution or revolution, we could call it, where as a result from that infrastructure, old school infrastructure becoming what we call today internet and, and all the ecosystem that was created of it. Uh, the next one was finance. That was roughly 2000, right? When the big companies post dot-com bubble were sort of created, I think you could attribute them to in the 90s, right? Because that's what sort of internet really took off. But then the full adoption scale happened probably post 2000. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why maybe the market wasn't ready for that adoption in 2000, where therefore we had dot-com bubble. Uh, and then post that, you could say another attribution is 2008, which is credit crunch, right? Um, uh, and, and that has brought a lot of change in the financial markets, which is you could call it fintech. Uh, so a lot of decentralization, deregulation, decentralization could attribute to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and, and the full stack basically challenge of the traditional financial system, which now we see fruits of it, right? Like a lot of billion dollar unicorns and decacorns in, in the space with companies like Stripe and Klarna and various other infrastructure providers in that. And like the last leg was, okay, so you can probably get away without having a phone still today. You can still probably get away without having a credit card, but you cannot get away without having electricity. And within that construct of change and evolution and revolution of energy markets, there were similar features of how that market changed. So you had still decentralization of the market. You had deregulation of the market. You have digitalization of the market, which are three key component Ds across both telecommunication, finance, and energy markets. And energy market is by far the biggest one. Everyone says that every company eventually will be a fintech company, but I could say, to be frank, like energy as such, still the most valuable company in the world is Ramco, and that's energy company. <laughs> and to this day, even bigger than Facebook Lab. Okay, markets change, but I think to this day, it still is at least to what we're speaking now today. And what's interesting for D in that was decarbonization. And that was another layer of thought that landed where for the last hundred years, commodity choice was oil and gas, fossil fuels. Uh, the person who could be attributed of the founding father uh, of oil and gas is Rockefeller. Rockefeller actually, you could say, actually founded the most valuable company back in the days, which was called Standard Oil. And history does not repeat itself, but it often rhymes. So for that matter of fact, a lot of biggest oil and gas companies in the US, Exxon, Chevron actually spun off of Standard Oil if you, you read the history book. And he was actually the guy who created this approach as a technology investment that later became the foundational infrastructure of how our economy ran for the last hundred years. And we, at that point of time, even back then when I started, realized that foundationally we're going through a massive shift. And that shift was powered primarily by decarbonization. 
And that decarbonization shift is coming from the fact that the learning curve of renewables, solar and wind have been significant, right? Cost dropped by 90% thanks to uh, Cleantech 1.0, boom and bust to a certain extent. Um, and we're reaching this pivotal point of time where actually generation by fossil fuels is not the cheapest alternative. And to this date, renewables are, solar and wind are actually ones that are the most cheapest ones if you want to generate electricity. And we're in this weird point of time where we're transitioning from commodities of choice being oil and gas to commodity choice being electron. And this, this uncertain, unclear gap is called an energy transition. <laughs> and we actually, as a firm, do not invest just in energy transition. Actually, to the opposite, we are investing in the future of that energy system. That transition is that uncertainty that we're going through today, and we're including myself with this car sitting in a very cold room, given the volatility of the temperature that we're incurring, which is the climate change, which we will attribute. It's not just about the highs and the lows, it's about the variability range. And then another one is also about the geopolitical situation, which we see we're very vulnerable. So the resilience topic, right? And these were two topics that were completely discontinued. So when I said, you can get away without a bank account. You can get away without a phone. You can definitely not get away without electricity or a primary energy source. So the importance of that got me struck. Wow. While I do understand a few bits and pieces in the finance, given I worked in finance, I understood how big of an opportunity. And I was shocked at that time when I looked at there was no one investing and spending time. I would go to these conferences and we see like 99% male, white males, uh, which would be 65 plus discussing about not transition they were discussing about oil and gas industry and and i was shocked that no one was looking at this opportunity which for me felt like a generational opportunity and one that will create you know wealth and that one that will lose wealth for some that will not be able to adjust for, for that transition so for me i think this is a really fascinating space and it's a one of those pivotal times where i think rockefeller back in the day when he created a company and his great fortune was going to you know, basically opt for. I guess times back then to back now are very different. There's a lot of capitalists like Rockefeller now trying to optimize for that opportunity, but I think the pie is so high that I think venture capital is still fundamentally playing the key role in this attribution and transition, because what we're doing is not only shifting from one infrastructure to other, we're actually, a lot of people misunderstand this, that we're not going from gas power plants to something a bit more decarbonized. No, we're actually completely fundamentally rethinking technology that we'll use to power our economies. That means we are investing in technologies that will become infrastructure of tomorrow. So technologies like hydrogen that we're investing currently will later scale be scaled as industrial scale plants to be substitutes for gas power plants. And that will be fundamentally shifting how we operate, the cost-based curve that will fundamentally will give a geopolitical aspect to it because suddenly countries don't need to rely on other countries for natural resources. They can actually have wind turbine and hydrogen plant and operate completely on an island mode. So that gives resilience. And I think, you know, while we started to think about 2017, I think politicians across the world just started doing 2022 when the fact happened. And I think that's foundationally why it's a very exciting space to be at. Uh, you could be excited about de democratizing finance, democratizing, you know, governance instruments like blockchain and DAOs, but I'm, I'm fundamentally be believer that what we are doing is not about just reaching net zero goals, but it's also about making our economy resilient because, I mean, I'm not far off this war, right? Like my, my family was heavily impacted back in my generation, my grandparents, which were occupied by 
foreign countries, which are aggressors like Russia, not that I want to bring in geopolitics to it, but like this resilience topic is very, very important and it's root cause of everything. And I think for me, that's the true impact. Uh, and there is a great fortunes to be made from a financial you know, aspect, but impact not only to decarbonize, but also get our economies to be completely independent and relying on technology rather than some geopolitical uh, maniacs, uh, you know, so so this is what really excites me. That's, I think, what I think is a big change. It's a it's a huge opportunity uh, to grasp. And fundamentally, I'm a big believer in technology, driving everything from cost to to pro progress. And, and, and I think it's a great spot to be an entrepreneur and both investor in the in the space currently. So let's take a, a zoom out now and a, and a step back. Uh, and prior to the to the interview, uh, we jump on a call, and you express the, the you know the uh, interest to uh, to cover a bit like the, the carbon market uh, landscape and, and ecosystem. So can you maybe like tell us a bit more about like um, you know what's the difference between the voluntary carbon market and the so-called regulatory compliance one? Um, maybe you can. Tell us a bit more, like, how does it work, kind of, like, giving us, like, the, the overview, sure. and then we'll dig uh, into the more the voluntary one, look at the different, uh, you know, technologies are in place. But uh, at first, just, like, if you can just tell us uh, quickly and simply, like, how does it work and where are we at today? Sure. Um, so they stand for what they stand for in the word context. So voluntary means that voluntary people participate in it. Uh, for supply demand reasons, whether they want to offset or they're off, like they're providing the supply or the demand side of the equation. Uh, on the regular to market, regular to markets have existed for quite some time now, uh, primarily regional, uh, country level uh, or continental level, uh, some of them. Uh, these are very different with different price constraints. Uh, to some big part, regulatory markets are not of interest for us as a firm because they're heavily reliant on policy and as we know, policy is rather unpredictable, and there's a lot of complexity when you try to scale these businesses, right? So if someone would rely to build a business on regulatory markets, they would have the construct of problem of how does this scale, right? If I want to go to Germany, that will might most likely be different to if I want to go to India or if I want to go to US. So regulatory markets have existed. Investment banks have traded these markets. Unfortunately, they were relatively unsuccessful back in 2012-14, even weather derivatives existed and these things kind of to some extent failed. The market still exists, obviously, to this day, but a lot of people don't give a lot of reliance on it because there are certain rules under which you underwrite in those markets. And the pricing constituents are a bit more rigid to fully, I would say, understand the quality and, the, and, and, and also understand uh, fundamentally how they're induced. So majority of those are you have to do certain thing, right, as a corporate. So the price discovery is pretty, I'd say, dynamic and adjustable to the supply demand side. What I would like to spend more is probably voluntary carbon markets, which is a very fast growing area. Uh, again, 2020, 2022 type of range have gave a lot of push for this market. That market has been existing for over 15 years. Uh, it was a very tiny market, uh, given the nature of voluntary, so primary, you know, participants in that market from a demand side are still corporates or individuals uh, to a certain extent, I think the smaller end of it. And this market really ballooned as part of the net zero goals uh, that countries, cities, corporates have set themselves uh, over the last couple of years. And this market reached already 2 billion in 2022 and grew almost 60% year on year. 
And, and for a market like that, that's a significant growth. Um, that market had seen over the last, last 12 months traded roughly 500 million credits with, a, with an average price of around $4. What that constitutes us is these are low quality credits. Uh, and, and maybe that's the point where we go to how this market differentiates between the different value propositions and how we as a firm look at that market. And there's been a lot of obviously capital going from a venture capital's point of view into different software and hardware solutions in this market. But you have basically three different you know, layers of the volunteer power market. You have what we call low quality credits, you have medium quality credits, and you have what we call frontier carbon credits. And the low quality credits constitute for the majority of that volume. And those are usually within tree, forest tree type of projects. These are usually low quality projects. And what we mean by low quality is, is very probably important. And that will later resonate to how we view the market. And when people say we, they are set at one ton, that can mean very various things for us at least. The way we look at the market, if you bought a $2, $4 um, voluntary carbon credit, that means you either had it bought from someone third party, most instances, the next question to ask has then been verified. Majority of the projects are verified by two registries, Vera and Gold Standard. Those underwrite the quality, certain parts of quality and how that credit has been issued. So that gives the validity of the credit. Majority of those are still a low credit, like value credits, which means that these, the, the value in like in financial markets would be attributed with the value that that asset gives you, right? So. If you bought something that is $2 versus something that was $100, there has, should be principally a value added from that $100 versus $2 or where that price difference come of $98. And that we call quality. And that quality in the carbon markets resonates to basically the real understanding if you bought one, cred, one ton of CO2 off, offset, is that actually equal to one ton? In a context of if you buy a forestry project, that could not be necessarily true because there's the permanence issues, right? The trees can be cut down, uh, the trees need to grow uh, to basically f have that full potential of that absorption of carbon credit, carbon carbon through time, meaning you're assuming that that one ton is equal one ton. Um, that's what we felt that in credit markets, you would not invest in one company or the other with different balance sheets. If one has healthier, they will be priced their debt lower uh, versus the one that has unhealthy uh, credit, which would price higher in terms of how do you borrow them. And that's usually defined by S&P 500, S&P or Moody's or Fitch, which are rating agencies. So what we fundamentally understood when we entered this market, again, 2018, because that's when we we're the first investment we did in a company called Choose, we understand that something is there. We initially understood that there was a bit of like, um, it's a bit of like buying your out your sins <laughs> type of market. There was only a few uh, brokers like South Pole and a couple of other companies. And that market really took off with net zero goals in 2020. We just saw over the last couple of years, probably north of 100 companies created in the sector. And what we saw back then that this happened, that the market fundamentally did not change. Still, majority of the credits were four credits. A lot of people obviously started to speak about carbon removal because carbon removal truly is one ton equals one ton. You took out one carbon credit, you uh, using some sort of technology, and then you sacrifice for permanence for 100 years, for example. You know that you did it, you took it out, and you stored it. Game over. No questions asked about quality of that credit, right? And you did it today, um, in ideal case, uh, because some of them, we still have very limited supply, therefore a lot of people are buying 
carbon credits in, in carbon removal space that are to be delivered in 10 years, for example, because these infrastructure plants are to be built and capacities to be built. So we looked at the market and said, this is very interesting market. Why? TAM could be very big. It's already growing very fast. We, I think VCs like fast growing markets. Um, I think projections, what we said is 2 billion now. I think projections are between 30 to 100 billion by 2030 or 2050 or 100 billion mark. Uh, I think BNF and some other uh, research agencies publish these type of targets. So this is a very fast growing market. I think I certainly compare carbon credit market to crypto. <laughs> and some people get puzzled about this. And the reason why I compare it is actually for those that lived through 2017-16 range when you know all these ICOs happened, actually you realized there was a lot of scams, right? Um, so there was a lot of tokens being issued. So I compare tokens to carbon credits, different type of carbon credits. There is probably, I don't even know the number, how many of different ones there is, but there's thousands of them from different originators. Um, and we compared that some of them are really good quality credits. Some of them are complete outright scams, or I wouldn't say outright scams, but they claim more than they actually do. Um, and, and fundamentally, crypto went through that you know, realization, oh my God, we know everything. Oh my God, we know nothing. Boom and bust, and we're going for another cycle of it. But through these cycles, what you get is quality. So you get all the bad actors washed out of it and the good actors build foundationally interesting companies that are there for generations to stay. So if you look on a, on a carbon market, voluntary carbon market specifically, we went into phase initially in 2020, 2021, where everyone was like, okay, we are as a corporate want to offset and we're going to buy a bunch of these credits and we're green. And, and normal press would say, okay, that's a marketing trick. The other side to it, because we say, okay, what type of credits did you buy? And how did you construct your portfolio to offset? And how you will do it? And does someone audit you? Do you have foundationally a distinction between a credit that costs two to a credit that costs 100? How do you think about portfolio construction? And then the people started to ask these questions. And a lot of these people did it with consultants. So they didn't have any idea what they're even buying or offsetting. So I think where we're going for the market is an interesting point of time. Sure, you need to understand what your carbon emissions scope one to three are today, which is the accounting, which a lot of like VCs went to back these companies. We actually shied away from it because we said accounting looks like what accounting is, like big four. It looks like a consulting business. It doesn't look like actually a product business. Maybe someone will, and we believe there will be some consolidation to product that could be software-enabled product, but I'm still very skeptical. Uh, but what we think carbon markets need to become a real market, to go towards that 30 billion, is not corporate buyers, actually. I think we need corporate buyers and they will come, but we need quality of infrastructure. And if you compare again to for tag crypto versus carbon markets is you need infrastructure layer, like in FinTech, you need custodian, you need ratings, you need ability to define price discovery, you need exchanges. I mean, I always make this comparison. What could be the most valuable thing in the carbon markets? It will be these features of rating, it will be these features of, for example, uh, uh, exchanges. So if you look at a crypto market, it's the most the most valuable part of the crypto market is protocol layer. So you can call Bitcoin OG, and then you can call Ethereum and other, you know, basically scalable blockchains. Um, and I think there will be something like that. There's a few companies in that space, like Tucon and some others that are trying to build a protocol layer under which these carbon credits can be issued and, and tracked. And, and we definitely need that type of ledger. So I think the registry will be like Vera and Goldstone will be disrupted through, I think, some sort of innovation crypto meets climate or 
carbon markets. Another part to it, what I feel is interesting, what's the most valuable cash business in crypto? It's actually exchanges. So it's Binance, it's KuCoin, it's Coinbase. Again, I think equally same coming from financial markets, which I do understand, uh, will have similar exchanges like that. They could come up as type of marketplaces, they could come up as exchanges, maybe they'll come up as an offset long-term PPAs, similar like in solar market, uh, where we have carbon PPAs. Um, however, what a lot of things have to happen for that market mature. There needs to be a standardized contract for which we could trade for various different type of credits. I don't think there's going to be one like there is for electricity market or there's for a certain type of software and hard commodities. But there will be a lot of foundational layer features, which will be very interesting companies. And one of them we invested, which is called B Zero Carbon, which they're building a carbon rating agency. Uh, they already have over 80% of all carbon credits outstanding in voluntary carbon market you know, rated. And they're providing a quality definition in the market. With quality definition in the market, participants who are coming from a demand side can make more rational decisions, can accordingly price those credits more rationally. So you, what you're trying to take off the market is pricing bias, a quality bias, and that market becomes more functional, meaning more people that are willing to participate in the market are willing to do so because they know what they're getting themselves. And what they get them themselves for a lot of these corporates, especially if you go to B2C type of business with brands, they have fundamental reputational damage if they do something wrong, right? They were gonna go to offset what's called one to three offsets with, because they can reduce their emissions through means of additional layers of how they organize themselves uh, and their businesses and they will go to these offset markets, right? As a last resort, it should be that they go there. But without that quality, without that price traceability, uh, transparency, this market will never reach 30 billion so or 100 billion marks. So for us, we look at similar like crypto. We're trying to back people that are foundationally building this market infrastructure and back these companies that we believe eventually will become really big businesses if this market under assumption that grows, but we think it will grow as that quality will come. So do you think that, um, I mean, in this, this market and, and building those fundamentals and, and clearly, I think the, the parallel with, uh, with crypto uh, was very interesting and uh, we see definitely like a lot of similarities in terms of like, uh, in a way, the, the quality and the, the, the lack of, of trust and, and transparency. But uh, something that also in a way similar when we're on the voluntary one, there is this regulatory one, is the, the regulation. Do you think that, um, you know, policymakers uh, should uh, or, or could uh, regulate uh, to improve a little bit like the uh, the quality and the trust of that market? W what is missing there? I mean, do you think that in a way this uh, uh, regulatory one and voluntary one will merge one day? How do you see like the, the, the next step in terms of uh, and, and what should be the, the, the role played by uh, regulators in that uh, to, to accelerate uh, this uh, uh, adoption of the of the market? Yeah, this question is a very tricky one. I could probably spend an hour talking about it, but um, I'll try to condense it in three thoughts. Um, I do not think regulators are ever ahead of technology. That, um, like in crypto market, regulation followed the market evolvement. Regulators are only interested to regulate something that there is a market to regulate. I don't think to this date that the market is big enough to be regulated on the voluntary carbon market. What regulators could facilitate is a dialogue to standardize market quality on assumption. That is definitely an important one. Maybe a third part to the regulatory 
merge with voluntary, I don't believe that merge will ever occur because I don't think there will ever be a global, let's say global, global, you know, regulatory market because good luck China agreeing with US on that market where clearly we see there's a lot of other geopolitics things happening other than the China is probably one of the biggest polluters in the world, not one of the, the biggest. Um, so this is a tough geopolitical even negotiation on, on that aspect. So I think it will never be a global market. Therefore, I don't believe that the market will be merging with voluntary carbon market because by design, voluntary carbon market is a global one. Um, so that's my argument to this never be a bridge between the two. Uh, what's beautiful about the voluntary carbon market, it's not induced by regulation. It's the, the regulation is residual that market exists. So if you have a regulatory framework on the net zero goals for companies to be penalized, eventually by, let's say, assume there will be a green tax one day, they will have full incentive to participate in voluntary carbon market. And the prices of that voluntary carbon market credits, according to different quality of those credits, will accordingly probably go to the north. So that's the assumption. If we don't get enough supply of the market, which we currently have a mismatch between supply and demand, there's more demand, but there's supply of quality carbon credits. So that market will be a very tradable live market, which will be economic supply demand features and participants will go and engage and trade the, those contracts within specific framework, whether that's going to be exchange marketplace or as I said, long-term offset type of agreements. And there might be three, to be honest. Um, what's interesting about this market for me, or maybe a lot, of, don't know, not a lot of people that I found talking about, it, and that's more learning through smarter people than I am, which was my founders, is there could be countries that are huge economies that will start issuing sovereign carbon credits so that gets very interesting and i don't think you maybe thought about this but think about oil right a lot of for the last hundred years countries that got rich are from oil you could think saudi arabia united arab emirates uh, certain countries in latam certain countries in us norway and others right we're going into a phase where if carbon credits evolve voluntary carbon markets evolve and becomes a hard, high commodity, certain countries in the world, like Indonesia, which has a lot of nature-based carbon credits, could actually have very substantial part of their GDP as part of sovereign issuance of carbon credits, which then they could offset their own economy to become net zero or so sell it uh, to other countries. I would not compare it now here to crypto, but I would compare it to sovereign debt issuance. You could issue your debt and someone will buy your debt. Similar like in carbon credits, you can issue carbon credits as a country through a treasury, receive that money and build infrastructure in that country. And you're, what you're doing is you're exporting someone's car, you know, uh, pollution. So countries that are heavily pollutant, like US, could potentially go and buy from these countries that are more net zero because of nature-based solutions uh, and offset that or offset excess, right? So that becomes a really true commodity because suddenly you have full infrastructure to issue these credits to regulate that market. And while it could be regulatory on one front on the country level, it will still participate in the voluntary carbon markets. That becomes very interesting, but that's on the supply side, not on the demand side. That's what the majority of regulatory type of markets were on the demand side. So we said companies have to assess, certain polluting companies have to assess. So you go and say, uh, you know, if you are running an ammonia plant or you're running a steel plant, you have to offset a certain amount and you have to pay this premium. That's demand driven, right? Like you say, you as have to buy that. We're talking about something completely different. We're talking about people issuing these credits and benefiting as a countries 
and then you know giving those polluters ability to buy them out from from their carbon emissions a lot of people argue that's not fair because we should not just buy ourselves of this problem we should deal with this problem and i absolutely agree with it but i think there will be countries that will not be able to basically take that carbon budget that they both accumulated and they're still producing to reduce full through their economic activity. So they will be still a buyers or what we call importers of carbon credits. Some will be exporters. And again, you have a foundational market being built from scratch. So I think this is a very interesting concept. It very much features to how debt markets evolve. And I see a lot of parallels of debt markets and crypto markets, both to how the carbon markets evolve. And I take the best features of it, price discovery. And with crypto market, I say, you know, probably transparency of that market. And if we can contribute those two into something that is worthwhile, I think this could be a very interesting market for generations to come as we continuously deal with problems, fundamentally trying to, you know, reduce emissions from our economic activity, which is buying more time for foundational technologies like fusion, nuclear, um, for technologies like hydrogen, green hydrogen, for technologies like sustainable aviation fuel to emerge as, you know, price parity comparison technologies to compete with the alternatives that we currently are using now for jet fuel, for example. That's a huge market, right? It's a $180 billion market. Any startup that meaningfully moves a needle there is going to become foundation Degacorn or even $100 billion company eventually, right? If they, you know, have a proprietary edge to it. So these are really foundationally interesting venture type return uh, uh, markets. And I think that's really exciting. So last question on the, the carbon market, and uh, thanks for uh, exp you know, sharing all of those thoughts. Uh, this is my biased view, I, I'm learning. <laughs> I, no, so I, I, don't I learned a ton. I learned a ton. <laughs> Thank you so much. And uh, I will definitely go back on the, uh, on the episode later to take uh, even more notes. But uh, last question. Uh, you know, I'd like to, on the, on the supply side, and you, you mentioned like those three different types of, uh, of carbon credit, and the, one of them is the frontier one, which I believe you include there, uh, direct air capture uh, technology. Primarily, yeah. Uh, which we see often as like, you know, uh, in the press, and everybody's like making a lot of fuss around it, like kind of like the silver bullets uh, to solve yeah. a lot of like uh, of excess uh, emission that, uh, that we have today. So, but can you give us a little bit like the, the overview of uh, where are we at today? I mean, there is like uh, Climeworks and, uh, and, and others like, uh, um, but still at a very early stage and the price uh, that you get out of those, um, you know, the, the, the price per ton of carbon removed are still so high compared to uh, what we should reach. So how do you see like the, uh, the, the, the those subcategories evolving uh, today? Uh, do you think that uh, there is really something uh, something promising or we are still at the, the very early stage and uh, still a lot of like R&D and money needs to be poured into uh, to make it like sustainable? So again, very tricky question. Um, uh, I have two anecdotes to share about this. So it seems like over one year, Every PhD scientist in every technical university just, uh, you know, did this for the dust of their research that they've done 10 years ago and said, I'm going to build a company in carbon capture. And it kind of feels like that. A lot of the technologies have been trying to be built or type of, or, or at least, you know, some experiments were done in lab to look at different technologies and pathways to how you can do carbon removal. Um, and to be honest, a lot of them are fundamentally built still based on physics and chemistry, right? So that's why a lot of these institutes around both Europe and the US have, you know, marginally started to monetize and try to commercialize these technologies. So 
I've been thinking about an average time it takes to get something from TLR, TRL3 to probably TRL9. It's fully functioning industrial scale type of first of a kind plan, which can be economically efficient and competitive. Usually it takes between, I'd say for the best people, seven to 10 years. So when someone asks, what is your opinion? I probably answer the question twofold. It's a lot about timing and it's a lot about the market opportunity and then the risk reward that it takes for you to make these bets. And clearly, if you do a back of the middle and napkin calculation of what this TAM of this market is, it's foundationally huge, right? Everyone is sort of saying that with the Moore's law and improvement in technology and scaling that technology to become industrial scale, you'll probably get to something like $100 per ton of CO2 removed. Um, currently, we're probably at 500 to 1,000, depending on the technology and, and chemistry and, and, and method use or pathway used. Um, so that multiplied by the amount of gigatons that we currently have, assuming that we're not going to carbon remove everything, maybe 10, 15%, we're talking still about trillions if we take not just annual, but we take the history of it, right? So it's trillion dollar market. So why does VCs get excited? How many trillion dollar markets there are? <laughs> not many, to be honest. <laughs> Uh, and to, to the ones that they would not have burden on being scaled, right? Like if you fundamentally believe that one technology could work and you have an edge on the price point, uh, you sell to the whole world day one. Like everyone is a buyer of this, like corporate governments, that's a question, but like there's no scale or barrier to scale other than building infrastructure. So that comes to my second part of the problem in this market. As I mentioned before, we as a fund invest in technologies that become infrastructure of tomorrow. There's, this is very foundationally similar to how solar market evolved. If you remember how that solar market evolved, it was a game of immediately about like a very high price point. A lot of people flocking it. That's literally clean tech 1.0 boom, right? Which eventually was won by China on as part of like scaling these technologies to a huge amount and having economies of scale in it, right? And China now what controls 80% of solar supply, uh, something like that. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, so don't quote me in numbers, but like very significant portion of it. And that went through Moore's law and the price point dropped by 90%. And to this date, we have the whole ecosystem of infrastructure builders that build solar financiers who are willing to back these projects and, 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 and different types of technologies, which marginally improved on the price point, but haven't improved on efficiency point. Maybe durability has been improved. And we have some, maybe still breakthrough technologies that are working like Perskite, which can increase like yield by 30, to three times. Um, so this will look like similarly to solar. But the question one asked, like how long it took for solar industry, it took exactly 10 to 15 years to get there to this point. So is this going to look similarly? I think so. It's again, I like the history does not repeat itself, but it's often rhymes and it feels like it will arrive. The question is, how many people you would ask made money from venture on solar? Some did. <laughs> A lot of lost. <laughs> so I think my takeaway from this, and we've looked at a bunch of carbon capture companies and carbon removal companies, is understanding what game you're getting yourself into and understanding the time when you want to play that game. And by meaning play a game, I think I'm talking about risk reward. Can you, if we as a fund uh, are looking to invest in one carbon removal company, uh, it's a huge bet to make because we need to be 100% sure that this is the right one, right? Uh, because we never invest in competing technologies because by virtue of, you know, respecting our founders. And I think people do, I think they have, maybe they're very hands-off, uh, maybe it works for Tiger because they 
just don't help the founders and they openly said that. But for us, we do work with founders and want to share this thought process with them. And I think it be, feels a bit conflicted to share it to two people, right? That they're trying to do the same thing and go after the same market. So for, for us to make that bet is really tough because I would rather take a portfolio approach and invest in 50 technologies and maybe I'll get one of them right. And it's still going to be a huge outcome on a portfolio level, but to make that one bet is pretty hard. So we actually said, do we actually want to bet a technology company, like a specific technology? Like Bill Gates said, I think, quotely, um, and it's similarly to the battery market. If you are a billionaire, invest in batteries and you will become a millionaire. So I think it could be with carbon removal that people that are billionaires invest in carbon removal can become millionaires because it will take years and years to see who is the winning technology. On the contrary, one could uh, argue that there will be required infrastructure for that market to exist. Think about a thing that I'm being thinking about it like long. A lot of companies like Microsoft and Stripe with Frontier Carbon are buying carbon credits into the future. So they're buying offtake agreements to be delivered in 10 years. If you are Microsoft and buying that, or maybe Microsoft is a good bad example because they're heavily you know, involved in the carbon markets. But if you're, let's say, um, household brand, Coca-Cola, and you wanna buy carbon offsets in, delivered to be in 10 years, would you wanna be insured that this gets delivered to you? Again, going back to credit markets, nothing changes, right? In, cre in credit markets, you have uh, credit default swap. If someone defaults, you have insurance on top of it. Why wouldn't you have it on carbon markets? Is it the right time to bet on something like that? Probably no, because the supply is pretty small. But will that be a bet to make? We think it will. Uh, do I want to look at PPA offtaking type of platforms where I can sign similar to solar market PPA offsets? Maybe I do. Uh, so buying betting on technology itself is a tricky one. Is there, is there going to be people that are going to be financing platforms to get this infrastructure built? I frequently joke about this example. Like, If you think about technology, you take Microsoft or any other big tech company, they spend roughly from 10 to 15% on R&D annually. The European Green Oil infrastructure bill, my personal belief is between 10, 15% will go to technologies and then the 85 to 90% will go to infrastructure. Majority of dollars will still be go to build these facilities that actually end up doing it. It's not just back to technology and scale the technology. So a lot of it will be required to like solar to scale that meaning build solar, build wind, exactly the same like CDR market. So uh, with Climeworks, it's exciting that someone already took a bet, and that was a private equity firm's partners group, uh, already backed them with debt and equity. And that shows the responsiveness of an opportunity seeing, risk-taking, which I think is amazing. We need more of that in the sector. And a lot of people already are waking up to understand that this is similar to solar. And it's just then the question, how you finance it? what grants are necessary to scale these technologies. Some of them will definitely need to be, you know, helped by the governments to scale these technologies like it was in the solar sector. And we clearly will have a few winners, like a big, big breakout companies that will define the category. But um, that's the beauty of this job is for you to understand the timing of that bet and understanding those type of people and teams that will go to build these foundational companies. So it's a, it's a not obvious, not easy one to bet. Um, it's hard to underwrite, especially at TRL3 at seed where we invest. Probably a bit easier to underwrite when it's, you know, series BC, where you already see first commercial plan, maybe not necessarily economic efficient one, but, um, and then what's also interesting, like in solar sector, you will need a lot of collaboration. So if you build, a, you know, a hydrogen plant, or you build a sustainable aviation fuel plant, or you build a carbon removal plant, you will need an off taker that will buy your output that you produce. 
you will need a POC builder who's actually going to go build the whole infrastructure plan, and you will need technology provider that provide you technology under which you're building that plan. So that's a difference from a traditional enterprise software company. They just sell software. These guys have to have most collaborations between policy, between corporates, with being like infrastructure partners to make this business viable. And I think that's what's really exciting for me because there's a lot of dots to connect. And I'd say a, a generalist fund would never be able to do that because to understand this foundationally, you need to understand how the whole infrastructure operates and how the whole financial market of, you know, supporting that infrastructure works. So for me, those are the main critical points of how I see the challenges maybe and and opportunities at the same time in this market. So for us, it's something that we would like to back ideally that covers the full metrum of the market. So it's a bet It's a bet on the market rather than their specific technology because to underwrite that technology, as I said, is pretty hard. But sometimes you find amazing people that you just believe people that they will just make it happen. And I think a lot underwriting at seed stage is a lot about people rather than, you know, sometimes business model, TAM, or even technology at that point. So let's go into the, the specific of uh, contrarian venture. I mean, like, how do you guys like uh, are and stay uh, contrarian uh, in your uh, investment choice? And may maybe you can tell us like, um, you know, a little bit more about like, as I was mentioning before, like this impact cash return uh, part of the uh, of the investment, like which like, you know, uh, subsectors or underdogs area do you see right now uh, in the climate tech uh, ecosystem or market in itself like what keeps you excited sure um so this is probably three questions so maybe maybe about the firm and sort of you, you mentioned like why we're contrarian so so we we fundamentally invest in across uh four verticals uh, and fifth one is the sort of the outcome of it so we invest in everything what is climate tech what norm commonly would be described but we don't invest in food and agri. So the core four sectors are energy, mobility, build, and industry. Then we call crossover technologies that go across all those verticals. So like hydrogen can be attributed to one because it can be used across these all sectors, broader digitalization, uh, Synbio and other stuff. And um, also we have carbon removal as a separate category because we feel that it deserves that part. That includes both CDR and also accounting management, the whole kind of ecosystem, what is in the carbon markets, because it's a new category, you could say. And then a new business model across the board. So you could have a company that has significant energy improvement and is in the, you know, in it's, it's a new type of chip, for example. Uh, I wouldn't say that that would be our go-to place, but we'd probably look at that as well, uh, because it fundamentally changes how maybe energy is consuming data centers. Um, but the way we look at it is we don't shy away from hardware, we don't shy away and I, indeed, we but we think about risk reward in terms of portfolio construction. So, uh, our experience for Fund One, we want to invest roughly 20% to uh, hardware companies, 20% to hardware-enabled software companies, because in some cases, hardware component is required to scale software component, component later down the road, and then roughly 60% in software. And that is a purely foundational equation of risk return. We think that you know, in venture models, seed stage, people assume between 20 to 40% of companies will go bust. Uh, we want to make really bold, audacious bets in the hardware space. So we really go early and with conviction after doing a lot of research. And those would be five companies, for example, in the, off the portfolio of 25 that we'll construct. And we are fine for all of them to go and bust. Uh, the one thing that thought that I want to share, actually, and a lot of people don't think it that way, but software, a lot of battery comes in software and climate that, oh, it's not foundationally helping. We're not producing emissions directly, but software is like a layer. 
it glues everything. If you don't have software, you don't have scalability. If you don't have scalability, that will never even reach the potential of carbon uh, reduction or removal or avoidance. So the way you think about it, software is still the foundational layer. It's what, according to my recommendation, still eating the world. And I think it's still eating the world in climate context as well. And that's how these businesses become scalable. Uh, however, software has one problem. The majority of the software, at least in some cases, that the people that operate with TAMs are usually using the McKinsey and Bain numbers. And those are not necessarily the true TAMs. I think in a lot of cases you can do a simpler exercise, how many customers you have and how much you're going to charge, and that's your TAM. And maybe what type of part of that market you will take. So your take rate of that market, let's say 5 to 10%. And what we saw across a lot of the companies uh, which have some sort of market mode, they usually still operate between one to five billion type of TAM. And that's sometimes a bit too, too small to have significant crazy big bets, unless you can have a monopoly sort of type of position in that market, which is takes time to build really. Um, and as we saw in software companies, some companies managed to do that. Um, and they went through acquisition phases and, and consolidated huge Beckhamoff companies like you know, Salesforce could be one, attribute one, Google, Facebook. Uh, and they became two club, two winners. We think there will be companies like that, but the market has to grow, obviously, on similar KGARs that it's going now, like you know, 10 to 30% in some cases, like in carbon markets, even higher probably. But it's still TBC where the market grows. On the hardware side of things, it becomes very interesting. Those are very risky companies, but TAMs there are huge. Take alone jet fuel. It's a hundred, I think, 80 billion market annually. So for you taking 0.5% of that market, that's really insanely large, right? So, 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 or similarly hydrogen, or you could even say gas, right? Uh, these are huge 100 billion plus markets that are actually growing again, six, 7% KGAR. But from that point of view, if you're growing, you're growing to something like 250, 2030, right? So if you manage to work out a technology, it's like a bit more like biotech. You don't even need to have revenue to be a huge company. If you have proven that you can scale that technology, I mean, you will have that revenue tomorrow. <laughs> and if you can show that it's an economical efficiency point, right? Competing with the alternative being fossil fuel, right? So these are exciting bets, but those are very risky, like in biotech. So when people go and say to me that they're going to underwrite 100% hardware companies because they believe that's fundamentally going to move a needle, I think they're actually asking inappropriately from the LP's perspective because they're taking huge, crazy bets. And there are patient capital that can do that. But for me, it's consistency as far as CLPs. I want to be top decile for all my funds. And I'm actually looking for a risk reward perspective, how I construct that portfolio. And not that I don't have intention for impact. So moving to the impact part, um, fundamentally, there is direct and indirect um, impact. And I don't really like word impact because there's a lot of words kind of being put in the same bucket, impact, sustainability, ESG. Uh, we look at climate decarbonization impact as the primary goal. Uh, it can be direct and indirect. Companies like hydrogen or sustainable aviation fuel, carbon removal, and foundationally, you know, Simba, if you create some sort of new materials that are more carbon efficient, or you create, you know, ability to recycle some stuff into the origin material and to do something with that, those are very large TAM markets, right? Because it touches pretty much everything that we consume in our economy, one way the other through direct energy source or through the outcome of that economy output like product. So these are usually, you know, direct contributions to how we remove. So if the way one would look like it, you would take 
full scope of emissions that we produce and we say which sectors that constitute and we have those breakdowns by multiple people multiple books have even written about it including john Doerr. but you look at what are fundamentally the biggest gaps what can i can take of it and what technology invention can be so one as a vc could go through that and say i'm going to invest here because this is what produces that the problem with that, what in venture capital is the most exciting thing, is timing of those being even able to go to market and in the time span that your fund size like lets you. So there are some areas where you're kind of basically, by design, not being able to invest in these companies because you know you will not be either exit or these companies will never take off because maybe something is not there for those companies to be you know, either capital efficient or, or maybe there's not technology that is scaled or de-risk enough for it to be sustainable and like sustainable being reaching that cost parity and becoming a real commodity in its own right. Um, on the indirect side, I think you will always need software because that will give you what time to build that technology, the, sorry, the, that infrastructure, as I say, you know, technology that they become the infrastructure of tomorrow. So the mature industries like solar are very interesting from software perspective. What you're trying to do solar is already there to build. The like foundationally, like technologically wise is completely de-risk. So banks underwrite that, infrastructure funds build that. What you need now is a software layer to operate these assets for the next 20, 30 years. So th there's a huge opportunity for soft software companies, right? And maybe even some hardware companies to accelerate adoption of, 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 of those assets. So I think markets go in different stages of how you and when you wanna bet software bet versus the hardware bet. So the markets that are still not there, it's your deep tech type of deep audacious type of bets that you don't know if they're going to work out. If they're going to work out, you're going to do really well for your LPs, but those are risky ones. So putting everything into that one basket is a very tricky one. But in software, you look at something that is foundational already mature and you want to just increase efficiency and accelerate that pathway to net zero, right? So I think we, we foundationally still believe that venture model is still, I wouldn't say completely better suited for software, but it's, it's again, from a seed fund perspective, if I invested seed stage in a software company, my dilution at IPO would probably going to be 50% to that. So if I invest and own 10%, I'm probably at IPO might be through additional follow-on investments, owning 5% of the company. In the hardware case, if you're investing in TRL 3.4, you could probably end up with 0.5% at IPO because they will need so vast amount of capital. So my maybe take from that, and especially looking at our fund one portfolio is, we definitely need governments to intervene at the early stage of these company building with non-diluted financing and taking some of that principal risk with venture capitalists together. And I think US is doing a really good job with DARPA-E and, and all those problems by DOE. And they're fundamentally understanding that that is what it takes to accelerate. What I don't like in the European context is that governments are actually trying to be venture capitalists themselves, which is a very wrong model to do, by the way. I think they should just let people like us do what we do best, help these companies to scale and de-risk them to product market fit, and then help them foundationally, especially in the more hardware, you know, heavy industries to, to foundationally cushion some of that risk taking for us. Um, and I think that's the right model. And that's what will eventually lead to huge breakouts as it did in solar industry, right? And uh, China did it to a certain extent, right? They, they went and sort of monopolized that market and put a lot of government money into it to get there. And now it's paying the dividends. And I think from a regulatory point, you, you mentioned that. And I think my my wish for the governments to think about, don't treat it as a next election cycle, treat it as a 20, 30 year cycle. And one thing that can you can learn from China is patience. And I think we really did not have patience both in US and Europe. Everyone want a quick win. And that's how not fundamentally big technologies are built.
big technologies and big moves are built with patience. So that's an important factor for me. And I hope with this amount of money, like trillion by Green Deal and 369 billion by interest inflation bill that will go, will will build a lot of patient capital that will cushion us to make, you know, better risk uh, reward type of decisions to bet these technologies and scale them to industrial scale to when they can actually make a substantial move in our net zero goal achievements. So last question, because uh, we're almost uh, running out of time here. What, what's your personal view on the, on the climate crisis? I mean, are we doomed? Uh, what would you say to the, the, the people who feel demoralized by all the already visible consequences, fire, floods, uh, hurricanes, uh, and, and so on? Like, I mean, uh, what would be your words towards them? Um, so what, what's my view towards this changing climate or? Yeah. Personal view on the climate crisis, are we doomed? Uh, what would you say to the people who feel like demoralized? I mean, you're a techno-optimist, you invest in, a, in yeah, exactly. like technologies, but yeah. uh, what's, your, what's your point of view? Um, I'm an optimist for sure. <laughs> uh, I think technology will be the primary cure for that as we compare it to COVID. Uh, what got us up to COVID, there were two things probably, adaptability, resilience, and technology at the end of the day, right? So adaptability to us being able to readjust as a species um, to certain things. I think we're pretty susceptible to fast adoption if necessary. Um, and we can quickly adopt to different <laughs> different things, but, um, but technology was still the driving force. What led us to be more efficient in how we hospitalize people, how we organize ourselves, and eventually how we got a vaccine in such a short period of time. Uh, unfortunately, there will not be a vaccine from climate change. It'll be slow, gradual, and then extreme to when it happens. Uh, Pakistan is a good example. 33 million people are going to be repurposed from their homes in a country that has been still developing, that is not developed, right? All the wealth that has been created from bottom line has been just vanished in, in, in literally one event. So what's crazy, I think, is unless it touches you, you don't understand the impact size and, I'd say, aggressiveness of that impact to what it impairs for someone to get lose lose everything um and and the problem with that a lot of people don't realize it is that it just gradually changes you don't see that difference so i'll share a story so i was with a group of people that called dragon chasers it's like a lpgp gathering in barcelona that took for the first time and uh, as part of like the whole agenda it was more networking driven to meet us lps for the emerging manager and gps and we went to visit tourist vineyard and um and we actually were so lucky to actually hear from the founder of Taurus Vineyard. It's one of the oldest and biggest, most, I would say, industrialized vineyards in Europe. And, and one of the biggest ones from a commercial standpoint as well. And you know what he spoke about? He just spoke for 5% of the time about his family legacy because they're still owning that business privately. And for the 95% of the time, he spoke about climate change. And it shocked me, actually, because uh, over the last five to seven years, the shift of um, of harvest have shifted by two months. Uh, the loss of his harvest this year was 30% lower than last year because of the basically variability of climate, both on the downside for the night being cold and on the day being very hot. Some of the you know oldest grapes that he had have to be repurposed from wine to brandy purely because they're too sweet because of sun. So what does it give you for someone like an entrepreneur who built a foundational family business through legacy for multiple generations 
his number one priority is climate change because this is his business that we're talking about, right? And a lot of people just ignore this fact. They just live with it because a lot of our economy is based on service rather than actual product that we produce. So we don't actually face any construct of externalities through our lives to see that actually world is changing other than TV, right? Or influencers or some people like us that do these podcasts and for small groups of people. But so for me, it's it's more consistent example to showcase other people how actually violent these changes are. And only by these type of stories, you can resonate to them, right? When you actually see someone that has been doing this business for 50 years, saying that this is his number one risk in business, it's not finance, it's not recession, it's not people, it's not being actually able to do what he's done or have to actually move the whole business to a different region. Maybe one day in Lithuania, we're going to have Greg bars instead of Italy, right? And that's crazy because that's calling, that's like moving foundationally the whole infrastructure and everything and it's not probably even feasible and misplacement of 31 million people that's almost as big as germany is a crazy endeavor right if we had 3 million people move for a Korean because of war that was already crazy right think about 30 people moving from one place to another so i'd say the extremes of this are shocking and, and people don't realize it's one to say it, it's one to see it and it's one to experience it so by the time we'll see it on tv that's one the next phase is gonna we're gonna start experiencing it and when we do, we're starting. we'll touch everyone. Exactly. And we'll, and then when people feel, then they will rethink. And the problem with that is going to be too late. So, you know, we're an advocates for not only about reaching net zero, but the speed you go to net zero, because that's what actually matters. And what people actually commonize, and I hate this, is we need to move to net zero. This is the arrow. Actually, it's the wrong way to think about it. Every industry, every person will have a different pathway to net zero according to their own susceptible experience, according to their situation, according to the geography they live. And that will be faster, slower, more steep, more granular. But there has to be this intention to do that. So it's more about intention and they're finding their own pathway to do it rather than aggressing it to everyone to commonize on one pathway to for everyone because it doesn't work for everyone, right? Different industries need to adopt. They will take different transitionary peers for them to do that. But that pathway, so everyone needs to find their own pathway. And I think we as a firm have our own pathway, how we tackle it from a capital allocation perspective. And we're very, very proud to be to, to be doing that. And and we feel that by virtue of how we project that investment, we found our own pathway, how we contribute to that pathway overall of, of global decarbonization economy. And we still believe that the best pathway is through technology because it gives acceleration and, and, and leaps rather than steps. So how can the community of uh, investors, LPs, experts, founders listening to the show can uh, help you guys today? I don't know. We want to speak to whoever is building companies and uh, we want to speak to we, we We're big believers that there's still not enough capital in the ecosystem. Uh, we built foundation a couple of initiatives to help people to get educated, whether that's conference, whether that's initiative that we call Climate 50. Um, but commonly along, among those lines is just trying to get more people to look to build stuff in the, in the climate tech space. And there's also more capital allocators because the value chain looks very simply. It's like a pyramid. You have LPs on top, you have GPs in the middle, and you have entrepreneurs at the bottom. And, and, and that bottom makes the whole biggest impact. But without the top, we cannot exist in the middle. And, and that entrepreneurs don't reach enough funding to build these businesses. So it has to be very aligned. It has to be very I think we're very different 
I guess, education levels um, between all those three groups. And I think it was initially started, maybe you could say with entrepreneurs, but then later filtered into VCs because they saw the opportunity. And now we need to fill down to LPs. And I think that's one initiative that we're really focusing on with another fund, 2150 Christian specifically, Joel, from that, where we want trying to optimize and mobilize resources for climate action. And that starts still with the capital. <laughs> still, we vote not with our opinions and words. We vote without our dollars. And I think that's best example. You vote with dollars every day to what you buy, to what you consume. And we as a venture capitalist vote with dollars what we want to back. So I wouldn't say that it should be less dollars, crypto or this, because everything is equally important for different people. And I shouldn't object my opinion, but I think definitely there needs to be more dollars allocated in venture. And I think it's the most lucrative opportunity over the next 50 years. And it's definitely not a trend. It's a category in its own right. So definitely happy to see how we can uh, help you guys. Any question I should have asked and I did not? No, I think good. I think uh, yeah. embrace for uh, winter is coming. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, Hokas, for being on the on the show, for your incredible insights uh, on the industry. I'm so excited to see, uh, you know, so many brilliant people like you putting uh, all time and efforts into that, uh, that cause and uh, trying to move the needle uh, towards a, a better and cleaner world. So thank you so much. All to be proven wrong, huh? <laughs> Let's see how the world goes. I think venture is measured in decades, not years. So, and it's also you see, you congratulate us on raising money. Uh, congratulations in ten years when we return the money. I think that's when the real congratulations come from. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I mean, it's a step-by-step process, and uh, as you said, it's a journey. Exactly. You're learning along, along it, and at least you put your time in, uh, you know, not uh, creating useless stuff, but uh, empowering people to build uh, exciting and new stuff. So. I think that's a, that's a good step. Cool. No, awesome. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thanks for the time and thanks for the opportunity. Hi, it's Guillaume again. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. As I said, do not hesitate to share an episode with a friend. Also, if you value the work we do for the climate ecosystem, here is how you can contribute to it. Today, I'm asking for your support and a donation or sponsorship to make the work of our self-funded team more viable. Even a small contribution means a lot to us. In any case, I will invite you to subscribe to our channels and visit our website startupbasecamp.org to discover more episodes like this one. And get your membership to access all our members' exclusive content. So remember, all of this is possible because of your support and donation. And we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. Let's keep in touch and I hope you will enjoy our next show with us.